Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. President Biden has now officially released his first campaign ad of 2024. And in that ad, President Biden makes clear what he believes will be the central issue of this election. I've made the preservation of American democracy the central issue of my presidency. I believe in free and fair elections and the right to vote fairly and have your vote counted. There's something dangerous happening in America. There's an extremist movement that does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy. All of us are being asked right now, what will we do to maintain our democracy? We are the United States of America. There is nothing beyond our capacity when we act together. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. That's Joe Biden's campaign message this year, that Donald Trump and the movement he has encouraged are a threat to democracy. Tomorrow, the president's going to continue to push that message in a speech at Valley Valley Forge, commemorating the three-year anniversary of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And the message that President Biden will deliver there, while important, will not be new. Donald Trump's threats to democracy are well known. Americans saw it when Trump spent his presidency cozying up to dictators and shunning America's democratic allies. They saw it when Trump did everything in his power to try to overturn the results of a legitimate democratic election, culminating in a violent siege on our seat of government. They can see it now when Trump openly muses about the idea of being a dictator on day one, should he be reelected. But perhaps the biggest example of Donald Trump's threat to democracy is something that has essentially fallen off the radar. An active threat to democracy by Trump and many of his Republican allies that is so dire and so urgent that it could wipe a democratic nation off the face of the earth before we get to Election Day. It has been nearly two years since Russian dictator Vladimir Putin invaded the democratic nation of Ukraine. And in that time, against all odds, the Biden administration has managed to keep Russia, thought to have been one of the finest armies in the world, at bay. Joe Biden held together a fractured NATO alliance, fractured in large part by Donald Trump himself isolated Russia on the world stage and rallied military and financial support for the besieged nation of Ukraine. It was, by all appearances, a victory for the concept and the strength and durability of democracy, of democratic nations standing up to authoritarianism. And now that victory may be slipping away. Over the last few weeks, Ukraine has faced some of the heaviest attacks from Russia since the war began. Russia is once again firing missiles at Ukraine's two largest cities, Kyiv and Kharkiv. Russia has taken roughly 20 percent of Ukrainian territory while leaving entire towns destroyed in its wake. The fighting on the front lines of the war has become a bloody stalemate. Ukrainian society has become war weary become harder to find the Ukrainian troops to fight through the harsh winter months. And all of this, during all of this, Ukraine is literally begging for assistance from its Western allies. But thanks to Trump and Republican leaders in Congress, that assistance has almost stopped flowing. 
Just before the new year, the United States set up what could be its last package of military aid to Ukraine. The only way to get more aid to Ukraine now is for Congress to specifically authorize it. A message that the Biden administration has been hammering for weeks. Here was National Security Council spokesman John Kirby today. Here's the bottom line. The most effective response to Russia's horrific violence against the Ukrainian people is to continue to provide Ukraine with vital air defense capabilities and other types of military equipment. Ukrainians deserve to know that the American people and this government will continue to stand with them. So it's critical that Congress meets this moment and responds by providing Ukraine with what they need to defend themselves. The time for Congress to act is now. The time for Congress to act is now. But as the White House continues to hammer that message, congressional Republicans, once staunch allies of democracy and opponents of authoritarianism, have remained defiant. Yesterday, the House Speaker, Mike Johnson, held a press conference at the U.S. southern border where he said that Republicans will not pass any Ukraine aid package unless President Biden agrees to draconian new border restrictions. For weeks now, the Biden administration has signaled a willingness to compromise with Republicans on border policies in order to get aid for Ukraine. So much so that some Democrats have raised concerns about how much Joe Biden is willing to trade away. But Republicans have rejected those compromises because for them, rejecting aid to Ukraine while hammering Biden on the border is itself a victory for their MAGA base. When asked about the prospects of a deal, the Republican Congressman Troy Nels told CNN yesterday, quote, I'm not willing to do too damn much right now to help a Democrat and to help Joe Biden's approval rating. I just understand that for a moment. Republicans are willing to let Ukraine, a Democratic country and a U.S. ally, fall in order to keep Joe Biden or a Democrat from winning this next election which is music to the dictators and authoritarians of the world. Authoritarian leaders like Vladimir Putin do not have to worry about re-election campaigns. Putin is in one right now, but his main opponent is in jail. He will remain in power for as long as he wants, which means he and Xi Jinping and Ayatollah Khamenei and Kim Jong-un can just wait it out until Joe Biden is out of office and the world's democracies are no longer united or until the United States is once again led by a president who talks about leaving NATO, who admires authoritarian leaders, who does not care about protecting democracies like Ukraine. A president who famously withheld military aid for Ukraine until it agreed to dig up dirt on his domestic political rival. A second Trump presidency that would be a threat to democracy here at home, but also around the world. Joining me now is the retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel and former Director of European Affairs at the National Security Council, Alexander Vindman. Also with us tonight, Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor under President Obama and the co-host of Pod Save the World. Gentlemen, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, Colonel Vindman, when you and I started talking about Ukraine years ago, after you so bravely uh, reported on that phone call in which Donald Trump tried to shake down the then new president of Ukraine. It was about our allies. It was about European safety. It was about um, curtailing and expansionist Russia. But it wasn't then centrally about democracy, the state of democracy in the world. Today, it kind of is. We have learned that democracy around the world is fragile and that Ukraine, to some degree, is our front line for this. 
That, that's very true. First, let me start by saying Happy New Year. And to Maybe you, start on a positive note. Um, you know, it's amazing being on with you because you get to the heart of the matter. You're, you're, the other cable news network is running the audition for the vice president for Donald Trump, who's looking to destroy our democracy. And you're focused on the real threats to democracy and the fact that we have a, a election about democracy and freedoms. And this is a, a threat that we're talking about domestically, but around the world, we see a proliferation of threats, not just from Russia and Ukraine, where we started the conversation nearly two years ago, but these threats have abounded. We have instability in the Middle East, coordinated by a ally um, of Russia, Iran, uh, that's running proxies that are attacking U.S. interests and commercial interests. We have threats in uh, the Pacific. We have the North Koreans providing long-range missiles to Russia. This is a much, much more complex year than we started uh, two years ago, uh, frankly, or or, na- or the, the past year. And I, I fear that we might be alert to the dangers at home. Uh, that seems to be the pattern in the election in 2020 and 2022, likely to uh, play out in 2024. But we are not sufficiently focused on threats ab- abroad. We are not sufficiently focused on the fact that uh, Russia keeps marching forward. Its relationships with other authoritarian regimes get tighter. And we are in for a very, very difficult year at home and abroad. And Ben, what what Colonel Vindman just said, I think, is interesting. The threats have proliferated. Uh, The world is just fundamentally a more dangerous place than it was four years ago. And what happens or what we do, not just what happens in Ukraine, what America does, how America leads in Ukraine is something that not just our allies are worrying about and paying attention to, but more importantly, perhaps our adversaries. Yeah, I think that, look, we're living through a phase of an authoritarian renaissance of sorts of the ethno-nationalist variety alley, and it's been going on for several years. And one thing Americans have to understand is it's not just a foreign policy issue. It's the fact that this trend is interconnected. You don't get this many nationalist authoritarian leaders in this many different places absent there being some interconnectivity. You've got Vladimir Putin in Russia. You've got Xi Jinping in China. You've got Narendra Modi in India. You've got Bibi Netanyahu in Israel. You've had Bolsonaro in Brazil. You've had Duterte in the Philippines. These are very different places. And I could unfortunately list five or 10 more countries at least. The reality is that there is a pushback against democracy. And Ukraine is the most acute manifestation of that, where you have the leader, the kind of vanguard of this autocratic trend in Vladimir Putin, literally trying to extinguish a sovereign democracy that is a part of Europe. Uh, That is both about the expansionist agenda of Russia that could lead to threaten other countries, including NATO countries in Eastern Europe. But it's also about Putin wanting to send a message about which way the world is going. Is the world going in the direction of people like Vladimir Putin, a world without law, a world without rules, a world in which might makes right alone? Or is the world going to stand up for some principle other than might makes right? That's what Ukraine is really about. And this is about our domestic politics as much as anything else, because if we are one of the dominoes that falls and Donald Trump returns to power, not only is Ukraine finished, essentially, they're going to be cut off of any U.S. assistance. Not only is Eastern Europe going to be potentially threatened by Russia expansionism, but there are plenty of nationalists waiting in the wings in other democracies Mm -hmm. in parts of Europe who might be poised to seize that momentum, get elected themselves. And we could be looking at a very different and more dangerous world even than today in a few years. 
Colonel Vindman, I, I remember in the early days of the war, there were spec, there was speculation by a lot of intelligence agencies around the world, including our own, that Russia could take uh, Ukraine very quickly. They offered uh, Vindman the ability to leave the country. He declined. They offered, uh, I'm sorry, Vindman, I'm talking about uh, 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 Vladimir, uh, Vladimir Zelensky. You're a pretty brave guy, too, though. Um, they, they offered him the uh, ability to go to uh, the western part of Ukraine. He declined. He stayed in Kiev. He put posted videos every night. He, he gives a message every night. He, 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 he motivates his people and tells them that they can win the war. And yet around the world, and the Ukrainian people see this, He's got his officials, he's got himself going to America, begging, saying, we could lose this war if you don't continue to fund fund us. How dangerous is this? Could Ukraine lose this war? It's unlikely that Ukraine could lose in the next year or two. I think absent this funding, uh, this supplemental funding for Ukraine, things get considerably more complex. There are still options on table. The U.S. can uh, um, move in the direction of uh, for asset forfeiture and transfer of, of these $300 billion in Russian central bank assets. That's one of the solutions. But it really does get complex because it looks like we're just not so serious. We're not serious about our security. We're not serious about our allies. And the fact is that invites attacks. That invites Russia to uh, conduct th- this war in the first place, I think, uh, on the heels of a January 6th insurrection, on the uh, heels of hyper-partisanship driven by MAGA. It invites the uh, Iranians to uh, advance their interests in the Middle East, including propelling their uh, proxy networks to attack U.S. and um, world interests. We're talking about world commerce. It propels the Chinese to recalculate the cost-benefit analysis on conducting a war to seize Taiwan and bring it back into the fold. Uh, there are the Venezuelans in Latin America with their aspirations to seize Guyanan oil, um, DPRK, and its agenda uh, to extort resources and maintain power. These are all opportunists. These are opportunities that smell blood in the water and see an opportunity to uh, really go after democracies that are uh, waffling and seem disinterested in investing in their security. And this is the one area that, you know, it really does concern me. I think we may possibly have turned the corner. At least there are some indications that the population in the U.S. is voting on democracy. It is Mm -hmm. not a pattern, but we are not serious about our security. There are fundamental uh, decisions that need to be made about Ukraine supplemental aid. And the administration could take uh, steps on its own right to really significantly improve the support to Ukraine. That's intelligence sharing. That's logistical support. It is. These are not expensive, uh, big ticket items. These are small policy changes that the administration could take on its own and just has refused to do that. And I really urge the administration to, to see the dangers of Ukraine um, maybe flagging, uh, losing territory and inspiring other authoritarian regimes to advance. This this articulation that that uh, Colonel Vindman had been about it, it just looks like we're not serious. This is obviously when you were at the National Security Council, this is a very, very important issue. Right. The idea is when, when Donald Trump weakened NATO, it's not that he actually did anything. He sort of said we're not that serious about this. You guys need to do this. We may not be around. It, it's these implications that we're not going to be solid partners to you. You and I have talked to to world leaders who are very, very concerned about this. They do think that if they have to make a determination that the United States is not serious, they start strategizing about their their worldview differently. 
Yeah, that's right. And, and let me try to be very specific about this, Ali, because this began uh, to get worse in the Obama years, where it used to be that there were some baseline issues of national security, where bitter political opponents, you know, like John McCain and Barack Obama, um, who might even have disagreements about foreign policy, they would agree on the building blocks of what American national security was. You know, NATO, Article 5 commitments, the collective defense of NATO, the, the need to stand up for certain values around the world. Um, and that was a continuum since World War II and through the Cold War. You started to see in a trend where Republicans would politicize every aspect of national security. If Barack Obama was for one thing one day, they'd be for against it. If he switched his position somehow, then they'd switch their position. And that's obviously gotten worse ever since then. And Donald Trump's election, when he came in and he tore up a whole bunch of agreements that Obama had reached, and he basically upended uh, American policy when it came to even at first hesitating to articulate the common defense of NATO. The message that sent was America is not reliable. The dysfunction and toxicity in its democracy has rendered it an unreliable superpower and ally. And the, the thing that Joe Biden can't fix himself mm -hmm. is that continues to this day. Even allies who welcome Joe Biden, welcome the leadership of the United States uh, and rallying NATO around Ukraine, they're sitting back and wondering, well, is Donald Trump going to come back? Mm. Vladimir Putin is sitting there thinking, I just have to wait this guy out. Maybe I have to interfere in the 2024 election to try to get Donald Trump elected. My strategy is a waiting game. I, as a dictator, have more staying power than American democracy because they're swinging back and forth like a crazy pendulum and they're not reliable. And that's what this is really about. If we cannot sustain a policy, if we cannot sustain something like the basic support for Ukraine, a democratic country that is under assault, if we can't sustain that for more than a couple of years because Congress can't get its act together, how is any nation in the world going to trust our word? How are allies going to trust our collective defense agreements? If they cannot do that, they are going to start to hedge. They are going to start to bend to the pressure from a China or Russia because the United States can no longer be relied on as a cornerstone of their security. We are already dealing with that just because of Donald Trump's previous administration. If he gets back into the White House, that's gone for a generation at least if it's something we can ever get back. That is how high the stakes are in this election. It's important that we realize that as we are struggling for democracy in our own country, that we have a massive role to play in the uh, in the rest of the world. Guys, thanks very much. We appreciate that. Retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman and the former Deputy National Security Advisor under President Obama, Ben Rhodes. We appreciate your time tonight. We've got lots more news to get to tonight, including the ouster of Harvard's former president, Claudine Gay, a major notch on the belt for conservative activism, but also an assault on the public's faith in institutions. But first, Republican presidential candidates are making their final push ahead of the Iowa caucuses in just 11 days. We'll look at what's cutting through to voters and what's not. That's next. Stay with us. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity set up chores, and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. 
Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. It's 11 days to the Iowa caucuses, and here's where things currently stand in the Republican primary race. Recent polling in Iowa shows Donald Trump leading his closest competitor there by 34 points. And while Trump is keeping his physical presence in Iowa to a minimum and generally leaving up to his uh, leaving it up to his surrogates to do the heavy lifting, his opponents are out and about across the state meeting voters in diners, participating in town hall events, engaging in the sort of retail politics that you'd expect from a typical presidential candidate this close to a contest. Ron DeSantis even completed his uh, so-called full grassly, which is when a presidential candidate visits each of Iowa's 99 counties. Not to be outdone, Vivek Ramaswamy recently completed a full grassly for the second time. But how's this all working for them? Sarah Longwell, publisher of The Bulwark, has been hosting regular focused groups with Iowa Republican voters. Here she is describing how the latest group reacted when asked about Nikki Haley declining to say that slavery was the cause of the Civil War. So we asked about the Nikki Haley slavery comments. Only Hmm. the Nikki curious normie had even heard about it. And when we asked her, so can you explain to the group what it was? She was like, well, she said something but I can't remember what it was. You know, it was like she had heard about it, basically. Nobody else had even heard about it. Uh, Joining me now is Sarah Longwell, publisher of The Bulwark and host of the Focus Group uh, podcast. Ms. Longwell, thank you for being with us. And I think what you learned there is very telling to a lot of us who spend time worrying about these sorts of things and, and, and thinking, wow, this would be campaign ending to not say that the Civil War was about slavery. It's a different game out there. The Republican contest in Iowa and the Republican contest in general is a different game with different rules. Yeah, no doubt. And look, the fact is, first of all, doing focus groups all the time, one of the main things that I've learned is that voters are not paying nearly as much attention as those of us who spend all of our time thinking and talking about politics. But what's interesting, I just did a group of Iowa voters this week, and for them, it's over. Donald Trump is the person. Um, They aren't that interested in anybody else. You know, I asked one of the voters in that group, what's one thing? What could move you off Donald Trump? And she said he would have to do something really extreme, like die or murder somebody. Oh, my God. And that was her line. Um, And and for everybody else in the group that, like I said, in, in that clip, there was really only one person who was even kind of curious about an alternative. She was a little Nikki curious, interested in learning more, was going to watch the debate. But for most of them, they said, Trump is a known quantity. I know what I'm getting with him. I want his economy back. I want his uh, policies on immigration back. I want his positions on crime back. And they are just big fans of his. And that's why it seems like this weird theater we're going through where we really sort of 
talk about the race like mm-hmm. there's an earth yeah. one race where Donald Trump is a million, uh, you know, points up. And then there's an earth two race where we're talking about Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. But I mean, the voters, they were brutal on DeSantis. He's been out there meeting people, talking to people. And they were talking about him like one person said, he seems like he's given up. And another person said, yeah, well, you'd be depressed, too, if you were down by 50 points. Um, And so, you know, I just I don't think that there's um, a world in which these voters are going to sort of late in the game, take another look at Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley in a big way. It's really a conversation about who comes in second in Iowa. So if you think about the last three or four uh, Republican primaries, there was a race. At this point in the game, there was still a race. People were still moving to close to the top or, you know, for a week, somebody would lead. In this particular instance, you had somebody in your focus group say Donald Trump, Trump would have to do something. I think the word you use extreme or, or something of that nature. That that assumes that nobody in the focus groups believed that Donald Trump has done anything extreme, uh, notwithstanding the 91 uh, indictments. Yeah, well, when it comes to two-time Trump voters and Republican voters in general, I mean, they think that Donald Trump is being indicted because uh, the establishment is scared of him, because, you know, people are out to get him. They believe that he is the truth teller. uh, He is the one there to shake up the establishment. And the reason that he gets attacked, the reason they try to take him off ballots or the reason uh, that he is under indictment is about... Uh, people being afraid that he is going to, yeah, disrupt the establishment apple cart. And um, there's there really is a totally different reality that Republican voters are living in. I mean, for example, you know, we think that it is extreme, obviously, that people attacked the Capitol on January 6th because of a lie that Donald Trump told about the election being stolen. But when you talk to Republican voters, as I do week in and week out, many of them take it as an article of faith that the election was stolen, um, that Democrats did cheat. And so if you live in that reality all the time, um, you don't think of, of Trump as extreme. You think um, that that we're the ones who are wrong. It, it, I, obviously, there's a, there's a challenge there for Democrats in the election coming up. But for Republican candidates running against Trump, is there any way to break through any of the stuff that you're talking about? I mean, the numbers indicate there isn't. Uh, but in the in the focus groups, are you hearing any opportunity for anybody who's not Donald Trump to to make inroads with these voters? I mean, right now, the one thing I hear is there is some Nikki curiosity, but the way people talk about her is more like several people have said the same phrase. I don't hate her. Um, and, and so they're, they're like, I'm, I'm giving her a look, but they also see her as an establishment candidate, as somebody they can't really trust um, because she's people say things like she'd be the mouthpiece of millionaires and billionaires. Um, and so they think of her as sort of a pre-Trump candidate and they don't actually want pre-Trump candidates. I mean, one of the things that they say very clearly is we're not going back. We don't want to go back to that world of sort of Mitch McConnell and Mike Pence um, and these other sort of pre-Trump candidates. We want to live in the, you know, make America great again, America first policies. That's the Republican Party that people want. And so, look, I think um, that there can be a world in which Nikki Haley outperforms expectations in Iowa, comes in second over DeSantis, more or less ending or at least putting in a deep freeze, his political career goes into New Hampshire with some wind at her back, which is the only state that is sort of really tailor made to be a not 
terribly Trumpy state um, and does well there. But then I think she hits a wall in her own home state of South Carolina, where Trump is favored by by a lot. I mean, and you look at the Super Tuesday states, the amount of narrative shifting that you would have to do, mm. you would have to say that Nikki Haley, you know, she would have to beat Trump in New Hampshire outright to right. even start to shift that perception a little bit. And I view that as highly unlikely. Yeah, the numbers are are big here. When you think of some of the come from behind victories in the past, even in singular races, they've generally never been this kind of spread. Uh, Sarah, thanks for amazing work. We really appreciate it. Sarah Longwell is a publisher of The Bulwark. All right, still ahead tonight as Donald Trump tries to evade accountability for allegedly interfering in the 2020 election. His lawyers are the judge overseeing uh, his D.C. case, or asking the judge overseeing his D.C. case to hold the prosecutors accountable. But first, while the right celebrates the removal of Harvard's president, there are some on the left who argue that Claudine Gay's ouster is just one part of a broader political war. And there's someone on the right who agrees. We'll tell you who next. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. I stand before you on this stage with the weight and the honor of being a first, able to say, I am Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard University. On September 29th, Claudine Gay addressed a crowd of students and colleagues at Harvard University for the first time as president of that institution. That moment made history not only because she became the first black person to lead the university, but because, as she noted that day, arriving at that particular point in history was a journey. In a speech called Courage to be Harvard, she reminded her audience, quote, not 400 yards from where I stand some four centuries ago, four enslaved people lived and worked in Wadsworth House as the personal property of the president of Harvard University. My story is not their story. I'm a daughter of Haitian immigrants to this country, and the stories of the many trailblazers between us are linked by this institution's long history of exclusion and the long journey of resistance and resilience to overcome it. And because of the collective courage of all those who walked that impossible distance across centuries and dared to create a different future, I stand before you, end quote. Courage was her message that day, and it would take courage from Harvard's community, their resolve against all odds, as Gay put it, to press on for change. That was three months ago. And in the months since, the institution's courage was tested. 
The conservative activist Chris Rufo led a coalition of mostly right-wing opponents in a plan to remove Gay as Harvard's president, using allegations of plagiarism and anti-Semitism. Since Gay resigned earlier this week, the conservative coalition has been downright gleeful. Chris Rufo even tried to tweet that he scalped Harvard's president. Of course, he had to learn how to spell the word scalped first. But here on this program, let's have the courage to ask why. Why was toppling Claudine Gay so important to Chris Rufo's project? In an op-ed yesterday, Claudine Gay offered an answer, quote, this was merely a single skirmish in a broader war to unravel public faith in pillars of American society. Campaigns of this kind often start with attacks on education and expertise because these are the tools that best equip communities to see through propaganda. But such campaigns don't end there. Trusted institutions of all types, from public health agencies to news organizations, will continue to fall victim to coordinated attempts to undermine their legitimacy and ruin their leaders' credibility, end quote. And according to Rufo, she's right. This campaign against Claudine Gay was about toppling institutions and reshaping them in a conservative mold. He said so himself in his own Wall Street Journal op-ed this week titled, How We Squeezed Harvard to Push Claudine Gay Out. Quote, if America is to reform its academic institutions, the symbolic fight over Harvard's presidency must evolve into a deeper institutional fight, a grueling form of trench warfare in which each concept, structure and institution must be challenged to change the culture. He continues, if there's any hope of stopping America's cultural revolution, It must begin with a clear-eyed understanding of how to wield power and reshape institutions in the real world, end quote. In an interview with Politico, he called it really a textbook example of successful conservative activism. Conservative activism to topple the institutions responsible for maintaining our democracy and making it more inclusive. Educational institutions that helm information and analysis. Journalistic institutions that separate truth from misinformation. Even public health institutions that help keep us alive. We've already begun to see what happens when conservative activism tarnishes the integrity of public health institutions in places like Florida. I'll have more on that story next. I'm the only one running for president that has beat these people time and time again in the state of Florida. Yes, we beat Fauci on COVID. We bucked Fauci. We beat Fauci on COVID. That was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis literally running for president on the idea that defying our nation's public health experts is a good thing. As governor, DeSantis did things like mocking students for wearing masks banning local governments from implementing their own COVID mitigation. And most importantly, DeSantis lobbied against vaccine mandates and eventually against the vaccine itself. Researchers at Yale looked at COVID death rates in Florida and Ohio before and after the COVID vaccine was made available. They found that while the death rates were pretty comparable before a vaccine became available, after the vaccine became available, Democrats stopped dying as much as as much while Republicans kept dying a lot. The excess death rate for Republicans was 43 percent higher than that 
of Democrats. And now, as we're in yet another COVID surge, still, here's Ron DeSantis, handpicked surgeon Joe Latipo, talking about vaccines yesterday. Frankly, I think it probably does have some integration at some levels with the human genome because these vaccines are honestly, they're they're the antichrist of all products. The antichrist of all products. Yesterday, Surgeon General Latipo called for a full halt in the use of all mRNA COVID vaccines. He cited the very debunked allegation that they can somehow alter your DNA. Joining us to help us understand why that doesn't make any sense at all is Dr. Peter Hotez, professor of pediatrics and molecular virology and microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine, the author of the new book, The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning. This is a man who I have talked to literally from the days before COVID was spreading. Uh, Peter, it's good to see you again. Thank you for being with us. Can you just help us understand uh, what the Florida Surgeon General uh is warning about mRNA vaccines and, and DNA. Yeah, and it's, you know, but the bottom line is it's misinformation. And as you rightly point out, it's that kind of misinformation that caused so many Americans to refuse COVID vaccines in, in our red states, including my state of Texas, with, as my book points out, 200,000 needless deaths because people refuse COVID vaccines because they believe the misinformation. And so what he's talking about is the fact that, um, uh, many vaccines, because they're biologics, do have residual amounts of fragments of DNA, not oncogenes, not not genes that cause cancer, but fragments of DNA. And they're generally in the picogram to nanogram range. Uh, for those of you who don't use the metric system a lot, that's one trillionth uh, of a gram. And these are kind of random fragments. But getting that into actually cells and into into uh, into the nucleus is a is a tough job. That's why we have no DNA vaccines, Ali, because DNA fragments have to transverse two membranes, the outer membrane of the cell and the nuclear membrane, and that's why we have to use special electroporation devices to get a DNA vaccine in. And so the amount of uh, any picogram, one trillionth of a gram fragments of DNA that can get into the nucleus is very, very tiny, if at all. And then we have special innate immune system proteins that prevent it from integrating. So even if that happens, 99% is, or more is not going to integrate in, into the DNA. The, the bottom line is this is just a scare tactic to scare people away from taking mRNA vaccines. They're extremely safe. There's no evidence of DNA uh, integration. And it's important now more than ever uh, just about to save your life or to uh, stay out of the hospital. Why? Because this new JN1 variant that's now rising uh, across the nation, and now we're back up to 30,000 hospitalizations again, um, you need this new annual immunization, which is specifically tailored for the XBB-like variants that are circulating. And if you don't take it, now you're at risk of hospitalization again. So um, why he would send out this message at all and why he'd send out this message at this time when we're desperate to convince Americans, only about 19% of Americans have even uh, taken this new annual immunization, um, is is uh, makes no sense at all and certainly um, is not fitting with someone who's supposed to be a public health leader. Well, at least we have folks like you, Peter, who for a long time have been uh, giving us the science and not treating us like idiots, uh, hoping that we will research it and we will listen. So thank you for the work that you continue to do, my friend. I appreciate it. Peter Hotez is a professor. He's a vaccine developer. He's been talking about this for a long time before any of us knew what 
COVID-19 was. He's the author of the new book, The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning. All right, we're going to be right back. Today, Donald Trump's lawyers asked the judge overseeing his federal trial over alleged 2020 election interference to hold special counsel Jack Smith accountable for violating her order to pause the case pending the appeal. The alleged offense in question is a pair of court filings from Jack Smith's team, including one filed last week asking the judge to curb Trump and his attorney's behavior once the case goes to trial. Behavior like spreading, quote, irrelevant disinformation, which on its face seems like an entirely reasonable request. However, it could potentially backfire on Jack Smith. Trump's attorneys today cast that motion in a sinister light, calling it part of, quote, the prosecutor's desperate effort to harass President Trump and prevent his likely victory in the 2024 presidential election, end quote. They're asking Judge Chutkin to order Jack Smith to explain why he should not be held in contempt of court, as well as to withdraw all of their filings since the case was stayed and be forced to give Trump money to pay for his legal bills. Joining me now to understand this is Joyce Vance, former United States attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Uh, Joyce, I, I, I want you to help me with this one. This one I'm, I'm, I'm troubled by. But I don't understand it. Judge Chutkin stayed the case because it had been appealed to uh, to higher courts. And I, I, I guess that's what she had to do. So now they're saying that because it was stayed, he's he's manipulating stuff. Is that what what's going on here? Right. So Trump's team is saying that Jack Smith violated the rules that the game is supposed to be played by. This isn't a motion that will have any impact on Trump's ultimate guilt or or um, the failure to convict him. This isn't about that. This is just about whether the court is divested of jurisdiction to do anything else while the immunity appeal is ongoing. And frankly, there's a good argument that the judge does lack that jurisdiction and that Smith should not have filed these motions while that appeal was ongoing. Okay, so what happens then? Let's say the judge agrees with him. Does he just sort of put it on hold and and bring it up when when the when the trial's back in in motion? Yeah, I think that's right. I don't think that this rises to the level of contempt. Trump's lawyers have asked the judge to issue what's called a show cause notice, and it would ask Smith to defend himself against the charges of contempt. Here, the judge might simply say, look, these motions can sit on the record and the Trump camp has no obligation to respond. Or she might even ask the clerk to take these off of the record and and give Smith leave to file when jurisdiction returns to her. Smith, of course, is trying to keep Trump from running the clock. I, I assume he's fairly frustrated with Trump's delay game, doing everything he can to keep hold of his trial date. Here, he might have overstepped a little bit. Does that tell me the the consequence of that about a prosecutor's overstepping? And I ask you this only in the context of such an important case, because in all of the Trump uh, prosecutions, the judges and the prosecutors are going to be under greater scrutiny than almost any other case we've ever covered. And prosecutors are always held to a higher standard than defense lawyers just in terms of their conduct. So, you know, maybe he should have held off on doing this. But I think the delay issue is a big one. Look, there are greater sins and lesser sins prosecutors can commit. And this, if it's a sin at all, would be on the very lesser end of the spectrum. I think we'll likely see the judge either say everything's stayed, everything's frozen, don't do anything else. Or maybe she'll just say, Mr. Smith, refile your motions later on. 
I think it's very unlikely she'll award Trump any sort of uh, monetary damages. Listen, uh, I want to talk to you about the, the Colorado case and, and Donald Trump being on the ballot. We, we, we may hear from the Supreme Court at any point now about whether they'll take on this case or what they'll do about it. Uh, there are other states uh, in which we are now. We, obviously, we've seen Maine. There are 17 states involved, but we've seen more action in, in Massachusetts and Illinois tonight. What do you make of where we stand on that particular issue, the 14th Amendment, and whether Donald Trump is qualified to run again? Again, and how the Supreme Court will, will evaluate this. It seems to me that the Supreme Court will have to hear this case. It's a little bit confusing because every state has different rules about how they determine who gets to appear on their ballot and what the standards are. For instance, in Illinois, which is in play tonight, the, the law in Illinois actually uh, requires the board that does this work to make a determination about a candidate's eligibility to hold office. And that's what the 14th Amendment speaks to, Trump's eligibility to hold office, not his qualification to appear on the ballot in any particular state. But frankly, just to avoid confusion and all sorts of problems in the upcoming election, makes sense for the court to go ahead and, and take this and, and hear it. But we have not seen them show a real inclination here to act quickly, even with these pressing uh, uh, time deadlines that are emerging this week. Well, we're here every day. So when they do it, we'll be ready for it. Joyce, thanks as always, my friend. Joyce Vance is a former United States attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. We always appreciate her expertise. And that's our show for tonight. Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details.